Thanks for being here, man. I'm so happy. I mean, I'm here because it's my place, but I'm glad you're here with us. Exactly. Well, that's quite a statement, honestly, to have your own <laughs> plastic surgery place. First of all, introduce yourself. Sure. Um, again, thank you so much for the opportunity. My name is Steve Williams. I am a board certified plastic surgeon. I practice here in Northern California. I am, uh, we do reconstructive and cosmetic plastic surgery. I am the vice president of the American Society of Plastic Surgeons and soon to be president. Wow. That's quite the, uh, the order there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So how long have you owned or, you know, when did you acquire this practice? Yeah. So, um, I've, we've been in practice for almost 17 years now. Wow. Um, I started, uh, as a plastic surgeon for Kaiser, mm -hmm. Kaiser Permanente actually. And I started a section of plastic surgery for them, um, out East. And then I started a section of microsurgery for them in Walnut Creek. And then I decided I want to do my own thing so we could have more freedom to take care of patients. So what does that process look like to be at a place like Kaiser Permanente, which I assume, you know, has a certain structure yeah. to then say, you know what, I want to kind of emulate this structure and, you know, build my own. How does that? Yeah. So it, it, it's really a great question. You know, Kaiser is really about um, reconstructive surgery primarily. And so when we were there, we did breast reconstruction. We did some hand surgery. We did some uh, microsurgery uh, for them. Um, but we didn't do as much cosmetic surgery. Mm -hmm. And um, when we transitioned, we kept all the reconstructive parts, but we added the cosmetic surgery parts. Um, the main thing, the, the primary reason I left Kaiser was I wanted to be more in control. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to say yes more often than I was um, able to at Kaiser. And I wanted to be able to do a wider variety of surgeries for my patients. Nice. You mentioned something uh, I want to kind of touch on. Kaiser didn't offer the cosmetic side. Right. And I imagine when people get, you know, uh, surgeries done health wise, right? Like, let's say I broke my nose, I have a deviated septum. Right. If you're going in and you're coming and I'm coming out, right? I would want it to look better in it, a certain sense. It's absolutely a natural thing to expect and to want. And some Kaisers do offer, offer some cosmetic mm -hmm. um, services. Our areas, our regions did not. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the point. We want to take care of the whole patient. Yeah. Um, reconstructive surgery is incredibly valuable. It's an incredibly important part of what plastic surgeons do. And that's why I still do it. But we really also wanted to be able to provide those cosmetic services because looking like you feel on the inside and having that power to self-determine is really important. Yeah. And I think it goes hand in hand because just because, you know, it's all health at the end of the day. Absolutely. Because it, it leans into mental health as well. Yeah. You know, because if you look better, you feel better, you perform better at work relationships that's right be personal or uh you know romantic yeah and it's also the control of your own body which yeah. obviously in recent days is becoming more and more of a discussed topic so how do you feel about that topic because i thought the same thing when you mentioned yeah. it when you are talking about feeling on the outside like you do on the inside and trying to match that have you come across any patients and i don't know if that breaches any confidentiality but have any patients come to you with that desire to let's say change gender, for example. Yeah. And so, um, we do some transgender surgery. We, I don't do bottom surgery just because, um, sometimes it's a little bit more complicated. I think it requires a more, um, diverse set of resources that our practice doesn't currently offer. We do do some top surgery and it's really back to the concept that people should have control over their own bodies and people should adults who are mature and psychologically well, yeah. they should have the ability to determine what they want. So I think you made a good point and I think there's a reason you emphasized it. 
when you say adults who are psychologically mature, have you, do you think there is, cause I've heard a lot of things sure. in the, you know, industry in terms of, you know, health, plastic surgery, et cetera, where there are certain doctors who don't do the required evaluations and ensure that the patients might be up to a certain standard to make those decisions. Cause I think that that might be a hot topic within the plastic surgery world. It's like, where does the line kind of draw? So I, I guess I ask, are there certain procedures or ways that you evaluate someone yeah. and have you ever kind of turned anyone down? Absolutely. We turn people down all the time. Um, and not because we don't want to help, but because either the expectations aren't correct, we're not going to be able to meet what they want or they're not healthy for it. And it's a really big question, but you know, the nuts and bolts of it are, there's really multiple things you have to think about. You have to think about is the patient healthy enough for the surgery you have to make sure that the patient emotionally is ready for the surgery. Um, and you also, in some ways, have to think about whether they're socially ready for the surgery. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is if things are crazy at work or things are crazy at home, maybe it's not the right time to have surgery. Maybe you're physically fit and you're mentally well, but you don't have that social part. It really is all those things that really make for a successful procedure so patients are happy, so patients are safe. And I think that plastic surgeons, board certified plastic surgeons do a really, really good job of assessing all of those things. And, you know, that's part of our training. I do think that the general public sometimes is a little bit confused about who, who is really a plastic surgeon. And so, you know, the concept is there's a lot of advertising for cosmetic surgeons. Um, it's not really the same thing. And part of the reason that someone who's maybe trained in emergency medicine or in primary care or an, a general surgeon will say, well, I'm a cosmetic surgeon is, is in a way they're kind of trying to trick people yeah. um, because there's really no better training. There's no person who's better trained to, provo to provide the complete spectrum of reconstructive cosmetic or aesthetic procedures than a plastic surgeon because that's, we're trained in every part of it. Yeah. So when you say cosmetic, would you define that almost as topical and plastic surgeons, so how would you differentiate the two? Yeah, so it's a really good question. So plastic surgeons definitely perform cosmetic or aesthetic surgery. Mm -hmm. It's just a little bit of kind of which word you're choosing. Mm -hmm. But there are, and certainly in California and in other states, there are laws about saying if you're board certified or not. Wow. There are only certain specialties that are recognized by the government as being eligible to say you're board certified. Things like pediatrics, neurosurgery, orthopedics, urology, um, psych psychiatry, um, and plastic surgery. There is no recognized board of cosmetic surgery. And so what we find is there are doctors who aren't trained as plastic surgeons, but they want to do these procedures. They want to take care of people, and they recognize that there's money in it. Mm -hmm. And instead of doing the right thing, which is saying, hey, I'm going to go back to residency, I'm going to go back through that training, and I'm going to become a board-certified plastic surgeon, they kind of take the shortcut. And um, it's not really fair to the patients. So when you hear someone say cosmetic surgery, it's almost kind of, they're trying to walk that fine line of, you know, oh, I, I want to say I'm a plastic surgeon, but I know I'll get in trouble because that comes with board certification and I don't have the qualifications to say so. That's correct. And, and some, um, and again, it, it varies from state to state a little yeah. bit, but, you know, some people will go as far as I'm going to sign up for the American Academy of Cosmetic Surgeons and they're going to say that I'm a diplomat or they're going to say I'm, I'm board certified in cosmetic surgery. And 
these are typically very small companies that are run out of a PO box that say, hey, if you send us $500, we'll photocopy a certificate and send, and you can put it on your wall and you can fool whoever you want. Yeah, it's like uh, getting the qualifications to like ordain a wedding or something like that. You just mail it in. Yeah, except, <laughs> except worse because you're actually dealing with people's yeah. health and yeah, yeah. kill people. Exactly, yeah. So I think that you kind of touched on a huge thing as well, and I want to kind of get back to that, is yeah. when people think of plastic surgery... I think a lot of people are, you know, mainly thinking, I mean, here you go right here, you know, yeah. thinking about implants and, you know, right. definitely the more, I don't want to say superficial because it's not because it really plays into mental health, but you know, the obvious things, but I think you touched on reconstruction. Mm -hmm. So when you say reconstruction, uh, if you want to dive into that a little bit more, what are some typical procedures Absolutely. that involve that? Yeah. So again, great questions. Um, you know, the concept is plastic surgeons like to say we operate on the skin and its contents. We are trained in an incredibly wide variety of anatomies, of patient ages, of types of procedures. And so um, if you think about if you're in a car accident and your leg gets mangled, the orthopedic doctors may come and put the bones back together. But if there's big soft tissue injuries or even nerve injuries, they call us to come fix those things and put them back together. If um, someone has a, um, a bad genital cancer, so let's, let's say they have some sort of bad uterine cancer and um, in order to cure the cancer, they really kind of mess things up in those very sensitive areas. We're the people that are trained to put that back together. If you are missing part of your esophagus, again, because of cancer, we're trained to take part of your bowel, bring in a microscope, revascularize it, and put it together to reconstruct a way for you to be able to swallow. Wow. Uh, if you have a, a tumor at the base of your skull, we are trained to remove part of your skull to kind of push the brain aside very gently. And we usually do this in partnership with ENT or, or neurosurgery, but we're the ones that are trained to reconstruct those types of things. And so, you know, when people say, well, you know, plastic surgery, it's, it's boobs and tummies and facelifts. Well, yeah, it, it is that, but it's so much more. And not only is there a wide variety of anatomy and problems that we operate on, but there's a wide variety of ages. We operate on everything from the, from, you know, the youngest patient, you know, a baby that's two or three days old wow. to, hundred year old. Wow. That's, that's amazing. And, uh, to kind of elaborate on that as well, I think the media and television, I think kind of play into that stigmatism besides, uh, plastic surgery, because the things you mentioned, like, that's amazing. Like that's to me, at least like neurosurgeon level to take someone's, you know, uh, small intestine, right. And then essentially yeah. transplant it like that's like high level stuff but i think that shows like botched for example kind of like oh plastic surgery boobs butt because, nose job chin because those things are more you know more popular and yeah. they they, re they resonate more with um the general public in terms of i'm going to watch this show about this yeah but you know there are a lot of people that are touched by things that plastic surgeons do all the time breast cancer incredibly yeah. important that people know their resources about breast reconstruction um, you know, we just had July 4th. If you if you yeah. lose a finger, we're trained to put yeah. fingers back on. Wow. The bones, the nerves, the blood vessels, all of that. There, um, you know, we just have an incredibly wide breadth of training. Yeah, that's awesome. So what would you say the most rewarding surgery? And obviously I imagine yeah. there's a handful because you've been a professional for so long now, but just one that comes to mind. What is like the most rewarding experience or, you know, someone came in and they left with tears in their eyes because they're so thrilled with the results of either reconstruction or, you know, kind of... Yeah, you know, I, I get asked that question all the time by patients. You know, what's your favorite surgery to do? What do you, you know, what would you do all day, um, all day long? And, you know, the answer really is part of the reason I like plastic surgery and part of the reason that um, 
you know, plastic surgeons are drawn to this is there's a lot of variety mm -hmm. and we're presented with different concepts, different problems, um, different patient groups all the time. And it really is that ability to kind of bring your A game to a complex problem that maybe you don't see every day. That's what moves us forward. And, and that's kind of what I like. There really is no specific surgery I like. You know, in terms of memorable moments, um, you know, there are a lot of them. And yeah. that's, you know, it's an incredibly rewarding career. When people say, you know, what was this, what was one of the surgeries that affected you the most? You know, it probably like everything in life, it, it's one of those things that happened really early to me. Um, you know, I went to medical school at Yale and I stayed at Yale for my plastic surgery training for my residency. And um, there was a surgeon by the name of Deepak Narayan who um, was my attending. And uh, there was a gentleman who was working at a, uh, a mixing facility and he got his arm essentially like twisted and avulsed off in wow. a mixing machine. And um, it was just, there was so much trauma and there were so many things to fix. And, um, you know, as a trainee, you're really motivated and you're really excited. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm an old man. And so this was the old days of training before the 80 hour work weeks and mm -hmm. before kind of this, um, you know, probably more protected, more shelter type of residency. Mm -hmm. And so in that particular case, um, Dr. Narayan and I spent 26 hours operating on that person. He and I took two 15 minute breaks wow. throughout the entire case. And I remember I finished that case and I was like, wow, you know, I am, I'm just so tough. I'm so strong. And look how, look how much this program has trained me. I'm amazing. And Dr. Narayan came to me and said, Steve, you did a great job. Um, you know, I want you to go around, go see the patients that are in the hospital and then go home and sleep. And we'll see, you know, we'll see you in six or seven hours. And I was done. I had reached the limit of what I could physically do, what I could emotionally and mentally do. And so I did that and I went home. I came back that morning. I found that Dr. Narayan had not only gone to clinic after that case, but then had gotten called in and operated that night again. Wow. And it was just one of those moments where I realized that no matter how much I thought I had grown, the people who were training me were just at such a different level and that's where they expected me to be. And so it was just one of those things where, um, and Dr. Narayan, um, he actually just passed away um, oh, a few wow. years ago, which is really sad, but he, he told me, um, you know, about six months before he passed that that patient still sends him Christmas cards wow. uh, every year because we saved his arm. And so, um, and Yale still kind of talks about that case because that was kind of a crazy case and, yeah. and it was unusual for people to work that hard and that long. And not saying that, that, that other surgeons don't work hard and long, but it was just a particular, like 26 hours and you took two 15 minute breaks. It was just a little bit unusual. But those experiences um, were really important in kind of creating who I, what, who I am as a surgeon and what I thought was important. It's that kind of energy, it's that kind of dedication, it's that kind of attention, it's that really, in some ways, almost inability to be tired and, or inability to lose focus. Um, and that's kind of what was expected. Well, I think with your profession, like you're saying, I think with any profession, honestly, that is as rewarding as you say it is, like there comes that natural, almost I would consider it like this tireless energy because you know you're doing something outside of yourself, right? It's not, I, I wouldn't say it's a selfish profession that you're in because you are making such a change in these people's lives. I imagine you feel when you're really in the zone, you know, this kind of like, you know, you're not even there in a certain sense. I mean, that's kind of what we're trained to do. You know, everything else is supposed to fade away at some point. Um, you know, the distractions are like, you know, did I, uh, you know, 
did I, did I pay the, did I pay the electric yeah. bill? Um, you know, who's, do I need to groom the dog? All those things kind of fade into the distance. And it doesn't mean that, that surgeons who are working can't multitask or can't listen to music or answer questions, but we have this singular focus where we are there for the patient. And um, in some ways it's a little bit unique that that period of time of kind of having this intense relationship with a patient that you're just there. It's, it's me and you, it's my job to get you through this. It's a little bit unique, but, and it's very special at the same time. I will say it's important that people learn their limits. And so on that day, however many years ago, it was almost 20, 25 years ago now, um, I realized what my limit was. And, yeah. and I think in some ways that's something that maybe modern plastic, modern surgeons or modern trainees in, in medicine, they're missing that a little bit because the system is much more protective of their time um, and doesn't really let people kind of find what those limits are anymore. And I think in some ways that's probably a, a net negative. Yeah, so what do you think you learned by, by kind of finding your limit? What do you think you gained from that? Well, I, I think you understand um, where those thresholds are. And so it, it means you can better care for the patients because you're not going to, you know what things start to feel like when maybe you're not making the right decision or maybe, you know, your, um, your, your dexterity is a little bit less than it was 12 hours ago. It's important to understand those things because you have to plan. You have to plan what your care is. And um, I think you don't want to find those limits or recognize where those, those limitations are, you know, in an unstructured environment yeah. where that patient's depending on you. So I, I think it's just part of becoming a good surgeon. Yeah. And I think that's a strong point. So you almost have to early on flirt with the edge yeah. a little bit. So then when it comes down to crunch time, you know, like you're making the correct decision, like you said. Yeah. Because you're not, um, there's a safety net there. There's an, a senior surgeon who's, who is going to say, Oh, okay. Yeah. You're done. Yeah. Um, you know, before something bad happens. But if it's just you and you've never found that point in time, then it's the patient that's going to find where your weakness is. And that can't really ever happen. Yeah. So early on in the very beginning of this uh, interview, you kind of mentioned your accolades a little bit. Can you kind of go into those a little bit more? I understand that you are kind of nation. What, what's your recognition? You're you're very high level up in the uh, plastic surgery world, correct? Yeah. I mean, I I, I think uh, I'm not good at talking about myself too much, but yeah, I mean, I think every plastic surgeon is well-trained and um, myself, I went to, uh, I went to Dartmouth for undergrad. Um, I, I went to Yale for medical school. I stayed at Yale for my medical school training um, in my residency. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an expert reviewer for the state of California um, for the medical board. I have worked my way up through the ASPS, which is our, um, our international and international society. They have 94% of all boards are by plastic surgeons as members. Wow. Um, and so I was vice president of aesthetic surgery. I'm currently vice president of membership and in October I'll be president elect and wow. next year I'll be president. So it's a real honor. Um, and it's something that, uh, I'm really trying to bring my expertise and perspective, um, to help all of us, to help us to grow. So I think from that standpoint of being, you know, uh, such a figure within the community of plastic surgery, if there is someone out there listening to this who is questioning getting into plastic surgery or someone who's already in it, what advice would you give them or what, what skill set do you think they would require? Yeah. Um, you know, this, I get these questions all the time and, and usually, you know, people say, well, I'm very artistic, so I think I should go into plastic surgery. And, you know, I, I say, Hey, you know, being an artist is, is fantastic, but, uh, you know, the real things that are required at any kind of elite surgical level um, to be a good surgeon in general or to be even a good doctor are really in some ways not being tired, you know, being able to respond and be there for patients. 
um, in some ways they are being resourceful and, and being creative, not in an artistic way necessarily, but a problem solver. And, um, you know, being honest and forthright. Sometimes we tell patients things they don't want to hear. Um, and that sometimes requires um, some degree of courage, both for us and for our patients, because, you know, no one wants to be the bad guy and say, hey, you know, you have a really bad diagnosis here and we're, we're going to stay with you, but this is going to be a rough time for you. Yeah. Um, and so I think all those things, being able to interact with people, being able to listen, being able to communicate, those are all much more important than saying, I can draw really pretty pictures. I mean, that's, that's yeah, great yeah, too. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot more um, about taking care of someone than, than the art part of it. Yeah, I think there's a lot on the line in terms of like what you're saying. You know, you really have to have a, a, a multi-tool set of skills Absolutely. To, to be able to handle it. Yeah. You know, um, and I think that kind of even ties into what you're saying about the whole reconstruction side of things. Yeah, and it's something that um, I think the other thing that's really important to recognize is we're never fully done. And what I mean when I say that is there's always more to learn. There's every day I say, what could I have done better? Who could I, who could have I have listened to a little bit more? Mm. What technique could I improve on a little bit? Not to say that we're not doing things well, but you should never be satisfied. Mm. You should always continue to grow. You should always try to see what are the next things I can bring for my patients, for my, my colleagues, for my staff, for my team. Um, it, it's really this kind of constant evolution that, um, that's really important to me. I think that's a, I think that's a great point for any profession as well. And it kind of makes me a uh, question uh, or ask, I should say, um, in terms of always looking forward and improving, are yeah. there any new methods or tools or, you know, I know within a lot of these fields now, there's a lot of robotics being implemented sure. and, you know, even virtual reality and things like that being implemented into certain scientific fields. There are so many things. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that there's always evolution um, if you kind of look at the history of plastic surgery, we're kind of the innovators. And so we, tr we try to pride ourselves on finding that next thing. Um, I think the things to kind of look at, the things that are really going to make differences are, you mentioned one of them, I think virtual reality and augmented reality are going to be really important because it tends to allow um, for training and for patient interaction and for patient education. And those things are really critical. If you can practice a procedure 50 times, then maybe you don't need to spend 300 hours in the operating room. Maybe 100 yeah. hours in the operating room is enough. And so um, it's better to make those mistakes or, or have those learning moments, you know, in an augmented reality situation instead of on an actual patient. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for learning. There's a lot of opportunity for people to get their hands um, in surgical situations at an earlier time than they're really ready for so they can begin to prepare for it. And I also think for patient education, it's really, really great. You know, I still do tons of drawings. And my patients who hear this or are watching this, they'll remember that when they come in, I take pictures and we love pictures, but then I start drawing all over the pictures. I'm like, well, this is what this scar is going to look like. Yeah. And this is how we do the surgery. Um, increasingly, there are more and more tools that will actually kind of show you mm. schematically and, and kind of educate patients about kind of what those surgeries are. The other thing that I think is going to be really, really big is the ability to... Um, you know, create tissue in the lab. Oh, wow. Um, and so there have been some really big advances where people are kind of growing, um, you know, having a 3D printed um, cartilage framework, and then they put on patients' grown skin, and then they put, they create an ear for them. Wow. And so some of those, some of those experimental techniques are getting really pretty good right now. And, you know, the next step is going to be solid organs. So like doing a kidney or doing liver and, wow. and those things will be transformative because yeah. now we're talking about in some ways having spare parts and so if something is really broken or not great um you know the ability to fix it 
the one thing that would be kind of the ultimate transformation for plastic surgery is being able to do surgery without creating a scar. Because wow. that's the thing that I think holds most patients back, at least from a cosmetic standpoint. Yeah. Um, you know, if they knew they could have a procedure that left no scar, there'd be a line, you know, 10 miles long out, yeah. out my door. Um, and so all those things I think we're making more and more advances to, but those are the three that I would, I would pick are going to be pretty transformative. And honestly, off the top, that sounds kind of like a pipe dream in a certain sense, but I don't doubt it the way things are going. Have well, you seen anything? So, you know, people say that, but what's very, very interesting, um, and this, this happens today is, um, the relatively new field of neonatal surgery. So they can do surgery when, um, you know, inside the womb and they do it for, um, relatively severe birth defects that might compromise the birth of the baby. When those babies come out, even though they've had surgery, they don't have scars. Wow. And we don't really understand why, but if it can happen there at yeah. some point, science should be able to figure out what those factors are. Wow. Huh? Because my first thought was like, oh, well, how are you going to get in under the skin? But if they're doing it and then it's either automatically healing or whatever the process is. It has something to do probably with the state of the the baby's yeah. um, cells, but it probably has something to do also with that state of being in utero. Yeah. And so it's not clear what the what, what that relationship is, but it's clear that the body has more secrets than we understand. Yeah. Yet. And I think that's probably a really exciting part for you is to like kind of keep, you know, stumbling upon those. Yeah, of yeah. course. That's what keep that's what that's why you get up in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Well, in terms of, and I, I have to ask this question. Sure. What is the most ridiculous, and I don't want to say ridiculous because I don't want to insult anybody, yeah. but what is the most outlandish uh, request you've had? Yeah, and so I, I get this question a lot too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, first and foremost, I think everyone has the right to, again, own their body and to make their body what it will, what what they want it to be. Um, in terms of, what's kind of safe and, and kind of what's common and, and how we know, you know, what operations we know how to successfully manage patients through and, and successfully manage complications. This probably is kind of a little bit outside of that. I had someone who wanted me to make them a tail once and um, no. And again, yeah. nothing, nothing negative about wanting a tail. I yeah. think that's absolutely fine. And you could do it. It, yeah. it, it probably wouldn't wag, but you could kind of <laughs> lift up some skin and kind of fold it on itself and, um, and, and I, I told that person, no, um, yeah. but you could do it. And I don't, I don't, um, I don't shame that person for wanting it. Yeah. I, just, I just wasn't the right person to do it. For exactly. Me. Well, do you think that there are other, they might fall under the cosmetic surgeon category, but do you think there are other surgeons who would happily do something like that? Or have you heard of that? Probably. I mean, I mean, probably there are people who, who would try things. I think the challenge is, when you begin to get outside of kind of the more core people who are trained to do those things, if those people are saying no and you're kind of going to the people who maybe aren't as trained as well or who are like, well, I'm going to do it because I need the money, typically you have worse complications yeah. um, and it tends to not go as, you know, um, in a positive direction. So in terms of complications, obviously uh, breast augmentation or breast implants is very popular, but I, I've heard that there's certain surgeries that you still hear about but aren't technically legal in the States. So, um, the, the concept of something being legal or not legal, everything's legal. So uh -huh. the, the state's very careful. The government's very careful about not necessarily dictating what surgeons can, can or can't do. Mm. Um, they're much more general. Um, and they ascribe that doctors need to follow what the standard of care is. Mm. And so Brazilian butt lifts, which is liposuction, taking fat out of one place and putting it in another, in this case, the buttocks and the hips mm. to enhance it, 
it got a little bit of a bad reputation. Um, and the reason why is because it was a relatively new technique. Um, the issue was um, plastic surgeons weren't understanding that if you're putting some of that fat in the wrong place, if it gets into the muscle, there are very big blood vessels there. And what would happen is that fat would get into the blood vessels and it would go into the heart and into the lungs and then people would die. Wow. Um, and so once people began to understand that, all of those issues went away. And so now it's it's an operation that's safer than a tummy tuck. And so wow. if, you, if you look at the data about um, mortality or serious complications, tummy tuck is, is probably still one of the more dangerous operations that we perform for wow. cosmetic operations. Wow. Um, and, and that... I think really reflects not that people should be afraid about surgery because yeah. I think tummy tucks are still very safe. Um, but we do a lot of Brazilian butt lifts. We do a lot of tummy tucks. The point is science continues to advance and plastic surgeons drive safety. It's the first thing we think about. And um, fortunately I've never had anything horrible happen from those procedures, but it's something because you know we pay a lot of attention to it. And it doesn't mean that it can't, but it means that it's our job to provide the best care that we can to our patients. And that means continuing education. That means making sure that our facilities are adequate and the people we work with are well-trained and that our patients are ready for the surgery. And I think you probably even uh, would also say that the miss, missed or botched surgeries uh, were probably done by non-professional people early on as well. Well, so again, um, you know, I, I really try not to... Um, because I'm not there, I'm not judging the yeah. actual cases. A lot of the cases were based in Florida. A lot of the deaths that you still hear about are actually international, Dominican Republic uh, yeah. or places like that. Because I think in some ways um, the patients are, are less educated by some of those doctors and maybe the doctors um, don't have exactly, again, not all of them. There yeah. are fantastic doctors that are in the DR or, or, you know, or in those areas who are doing these procedures. But there are definitely some that maybe don't take safety quite as critically. That's one of the things we always tell patients, you know, there are great plastic surgeons all over the U.S. If you live in the U.S., traveling abroad for plastic surgery, it may have some risk that you may not have here in the U.S. Yeah. Well, I think that the main reason people probably travel abroad is for prices, yep. right? I think that's trying true. to kind of save money. So, I mean, and I think that's with anything. If you're kind of trying to cut costs, there's an added risk that comes with it. Yeah. You know? And, and in, in some ways, it's not fair to the patients because I do think that sometimes when they go to other people, those risks are minimized. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So in terms of breast augmentation or breast implants, how safe would you say that is? I know you mentioned, obviously, tummy tuck isn't necessarily unsafe, but compared to Brazilian butt lift, it's slightly more risky. Yeah, I, I think it depends on, you know, what category of complication you're talking about, right? And so, you know, if, if we have a patient who we perform um, a procedure on, and they have um, pain three months after, we consider that a complication. Mm -hmm. now, is that a serious complication? Most of the time, a little bit of postoperative pain is a little bit longer than we expect isn't a serious complication, but it's our job to still take it seriously and still try to think about why it happened and how we can help that particular patient. And so if you're saying which procedure has more complications, it, it kind of depends on which complication you're talking about. And so breast augmentations are also a very safe operation. It's been done for a very, very long time. It's, it's still one of the most common operations that's performed in the United States, but it has its own set of complications. Scar tissue um, that forms around the implant, um, where the implants can get firm or, or change shape, implant rupture or leakage, those things are all risks that obviously you don't have with a tummy tuck. And so 
those risks are more common in that particular surgery. Hmm. That makes sense. So in terms of any unexpected complications, right? Obviously yeah. with plastic surgery, there's kind of expected complications. Is there any kind of unexpected consequences that you've experienced that you never would have thought by being a plastic surgeon? Yeah, that's a good question. I've actually never been asked that question before in that, in that particular way. I, I think, you know, the point about being well-trained is we want to understand the most common complications. We want to understand um, the things that our patients may have to deal with. We want to anticipate them. And so even in the unlikely event that they do happen, we have a solution for what we can do. Um, so, for example, if someone has a little infection, we know, oh, well, maybe we need to put some antibiotics, you know, put that patient on antibiotics, or maybe we need to take them back to the operating room. We have a game plan because being surprised is not a great situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think all of us have definitely been in situations where you've been operating and you find something that's unexpected. Mm. Um, and sometimes those things that we find that are unexpected are very common and also kind of well within the pathway of things we do. And an example of that is we're doing a, a tummy tuck and we find a hernia. Happens all happens all the time and we're trained to recognize that hernia and fix it while we're there. Um, you know, I, I think that an unexpected complication or an unexpected finding, it usually has to do with another surgeon's been there before and I'm like, oh, what were they thinking, yeah. you know, when I, I come in there? But fortunately, I haven't found a ton of complications I've been surprised by. Every once in a while, if they're if we're doing a, a, a case where we're sending pathology, every once in a while, I'm, I'm surprised by the pathology that comes yeah. back. We think it's something that's benign, and it turns out not to be oh, benign. Right. But that's one of the reasons why we try to be very um, conscientious and um, in some ways very aggressive about making sure we send a lot of that tissue because most of it's going to be false negatives, but every once in a while, you get a positive those patients that you find that are positives, you may be saving their life. Wow. So even outside of the scope of specifically surgery, right? Mm -hmm. Like I've talked to some real estate agents and I have found out that real estate agency or being a real estate agent is actually one of the most dangerous occupations okay. in the United States. I did not know that. Exactly. Which is like, <laughs> how is that possible? But I guess that a lot of people will follow them into open houses oh and gosh. et cetera. So okay. it's like real scary stuff. Sure. So alongside of that, outside of complications within the surgery, but maybe things that come with it, Right, because I know a lot of people in the medical field, their family now calls them all day long. Hey, I have this thing. Hey, my throat feels funny. Hey, this. Do you find anything you know comical that has kind of come up out of being a plastic surgeon? No, um, you know, I, I think um, when I was dating, um, you know, I, I had a couple of girlfriends um, when I was dating, and I was a resident, and I'd be out, and a patient would be like, "Look at this," <laughs> and they'd be like, "What is going on?" I'm like, "It's a patient. I'm sorry." Um, so sometimes that's the, you know, socially, there can be a little bit of that, um, but not really. Yeah. It, it's it's a great profession. It, it, it's really, um, you know, generally our patients are are healthy. Um, generally, the things that we're able to help them with, whether it's cosmetic or reconstructive, are life changing. And um, you know, for the most part, people really do well. And it's a it's a real blessing that I, I'm able to help people. I, I I mean, every day that I come to work, um, you know, work's not always easy, yeah. um, but I can't imagine being any other kind of doctor. Well, hey, man, it was a pleasure talking to you. I pleasure think we kind of you. hit a lot of points. Is there any other things that you either want to, you know, call out to anything coming up that you want people to be aware of or anything you want to plug? Yeah, no, um, always go to a board certified plastic surgeon. <laughs> That's just a, a safety thing. Um, you know, if you are a plastic surgeon, American Society of Plastic Surgery is a great organization to be a part of. I think they have tons of resources, both for patients and for, for plastic surgeons. Um, 
And if you're thinking about being a plastic surgeon, I encourage people to reach out to me on social media or, or by email. I really try to be supportive. If you're a patient and you have questions or things seem odd, you can follow us online. And, and um, you know, we try to answer questions as much as we can. And you can kind of follow some of our patient journeys. And so uh, you know, we're on Instagram and on, uh, and on YouTube. Cool. And we'll make sure to put those in the, the description too. So we can follow you guys. Appreciate it. Cool. All Thank right. you, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. Great. I know, I know, I know, I know.